Merry Christmas. This is uh, Christmas Sunday, and uh, we are still in our series coming soon. Um, Hopefully you have been receiving the daily videos and also the readings for each week. We're going to continue the Common Thread Bible study uh, throughout this next year, hopefully, and um, it's just a great way to study where we're at. It takes four passages of Scripture from the Old, the New, the Gospels, and the Psalms, and you read those each day, write down a few things it says to you, and then on Friday you find that common theme that runs through, the common thread that runs through each of those passages. It's a great way to um, go deeper into Scripture, as well as on Sunday I'll be preaching out of those four passages, so it's helpful that way, right? Uh, I wanted you to go on a journey with me, and I want you to go back uh, to high school, to English class. I hated English. I just didn't enjoy it. I mean, I don't know if it was just the detail of English or if it was the rules. Just about the time you learned the rule, there was an exception to the rule, Um, You know, English, they say English is probably maybe one of the hardest languages to learn. I've taken Spanish. uh, I've taken three or four years of biblical Greek. And uh, I will say I enjoyed probably the Greek better than I did the English. Um, And it's hard to learn. And the reason it's hard to learn, well, I guess one thing, evidence of that is just the bad language that we use, right? Right. And I don't mean cussing. I mean the bad grammar that we use. And so I thought I'd go out online and um, pull out a few signs that show this. Yeah, that church needs, yeah, anyway, they need reformed. Uh, We remember all who have served hot breakfast. Oh, it gets better. Hunters, please use caution when hunting pedestrians using walking trails. You see what I'm saying? I mean, that makes total sense, right? If you put the right punctuation and stuff in there. But if you miss just even a comma, it just changes the whole meaning. How about this one? For disabled, elderly, pregnant children. Thank you for shopping with us. Yes. Remember those subjects in high school that you hated and you would say, I'm never going to use this, right? I'm never going to use this, so why do I have to study? I mean, when it came to English, I remember saying, it's the language I speak. Why do I have to study it? And then you start studying and you realize just how much you don't know about the English language. I thought that I would never have to dig into the details and rules of the English language until two years into biblical Greek in my undergrad and more years in my master's work, guess what I found? When you start to translate other languages, it's a good thing to know well the language you're translating to. English. And I mean, when we started doing nouns and verbs and pronouns and prepositions and clauses and subjects of verbs and all of these things and how they fit together and how you make a sentence. (sighs) I hate English. Did I say that? And then I started having to parse verbs. 
Yeah, parsing verbs. Verbs were your favorite part of English to sub, you know, the verb kind of makes the sentence, right? It gives you the, the action of the sentence. It has a subject, it has an action, it has a person. A person? Yeah. It has a number, singular or plural. It has a tense, it has a mood. Did you know that a verb has a mood? Some days it's happy-go-lucky. Some days it's just not fun at all, you know? It has a mood. It has a voice and all of this stuff. Did you know that sentences have moods? When you're reading and you read a sentence, it has a mood. And about right now, I'm about to lose you because you're like, this is absolutely bonkers. What does this have anything to do with anything? Do you know what the three moods are? not going there we'll go to the next one do you know what the three moods are i'll give you a hint the first one the indicative mood it states a fact yes a sentence can state a fact it here's an example the sky is blue that's an indicative what's next the imperative mood it states a command it's an order you know make your bed that's an imperative command but then there's a mood called subjunctive I had to go back and rethink this one and, and look this one up. But the subjunctive mood states a wish. I wish the sky was green. It's not. The imperative says it's blue, but the subjunctive says maybe it could be green someday. I wish it could be green. I wish it would be green. Sentences have moods. What if our faith has a mood. Think about this with me. Stay with me. Follow me. I think sometimes we get stuck in life because we only live in the indicative mood. Especially when it comes to our belief about God. We like our faith to be wrapped up in a nice, clean package. Our doctrine has all of its T's crossed and its I's dotted. We want to know and believe the facts of our faith. That's imperative. It states a fact. We want our faith to be certain. We actually believe that faith must be grounded in certainty or we get really worried. Faith lived in the indicative mood says this. My God is. And fill in the blank. My God is good. My God is kind. My God is holy. My God is love. The indicative mood of faith. We like our God to operate in the black and white of life. We don't want to leave any room for doubt. We get nervous when our God lives in the gray areas of life. When we can't figure Him out. When we don't know for sure. When we're not sure what He says about a certain subject or context of our time. We get nervous. And so we make stuff up. Because we have to be God is in our faith. But what if we get so comfortable with the God is, 
that we suffocate out the subjunctive mood of faith. The God could. God might. What ifs of life. The possibility of a God who sometimes surprises us. That we don't have him all figured out. That we can't say God is, but sometimes in life we say God could if he would. God could do the unexpected. God could perform a miraculous thing in my life. God brings, could bring the wonder and the, and the uh, mystery of life. We get stuck in the facts of life and we slowly stop dreaming or imagining a God who is bigger than the box that we've put him in. Yes, God is, but God also could. God also might. God also is what if God. I know what you're thinking because I thought the same thing. It's easier to just stick to the facts, right? Let's just keep our faith in the imperative mood. And you can keep the subjunctive mood because that's just too much gray. That's too much hoping. That's too much, antici- that's too much expecting from God. I'm just going to stick with what I know about God. Why dream? Why imagine? We'll probably just be let down. Why get our hopes up in the face of the reality of what we know is? We know our reality, don't we? We know what we're facing. We know what we're dealing with. We know what's around the corner. We know when we go home what we're going to have to look to this next week. The promises of God aren't always visible in the reality of life. The promises of God aren't always visible in the reality that we live now. God is good, but we live in evil. God is love, but there's hate all around us. God is a healer, but we live with disease and sickness. God is all-powerful. But things happen to us that are completely out of our control, and we can do nothing about it. And here is our crisis of faith. This is why some of you listening today have left the church. Maybe you've even left God. This is why you won't follow Jesus. This is why you won't completely give your heart to Him. Why? Because you're not sure you can trust Him. You're not sure that this God who is, is. (laughs) Because you look at your reality and the promises of a God who is don't always come true, aren't always visible in the life that you're living. You're not sure you can trust Him. If God is, then why? The facts of our reality don't always line up with the God who is. Matter of fact, if I were to go into a courtroom 
and argue the case for God is, many courtrooms would be full of evidence that goes contrary to what we think God is because of what we deal with in this life. How can an all-knowing God who is infinite seem so limited in my life? It's because you are stuck in the imperative. You're not in the subjunctive mood of God. You're not dreaming. You're not imagining. You're not thinking that God could. What if you're not holding out that God's going to show up? But we're not alone in that. The psalmist lamented over this tension. He felt the same way. In Psalm 89, which was part of our reading this week, the psalmist says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. A promise. I have promised you this. I have made this covenant. I have sworn, this is God speaking, I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and I will build your throne for all generations. And the psalmist goes on for 36 verses and just recounts and remembers this covenant that God made with David. David's kingdom, his earthly kingdom, came falling down hard. The psalmist was remembering the covenant of God with his people, the promises of God from an exiled country in Babylon. His reality was, we have not overcome. We have not won the war. Our enemies have overcame us. They've overrun us. And our nation is no more. And this psalmist is remembering this. And he says, but God, in verse 38, but now you have cast off and rejected us. You are full of wrath against your anointed, which is Israel. You have renounced the covenant with your servant you have defiled his crown in the dust you have breached his walls and have laid his strongholds he's speaking about jerusalem and the temple it's been laid waste where is your promise god you promised us and here we sit in this reality and then in verse 46 he says how long O lord Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? You promised, God. Why have you gone back on your promise? Why are you not intervening in my life? Why are you not here now making this right, making this good? You've promised. And the psalmist remembers that. And to tie that thread into the other passage in Luke... The common thread runs through Psalm into through the second chapter of Samuel where God makes this incredible promise that I'm going to build a kingdom that will last forever and, and you're going to be victorious and you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to overwhelm your enemies. But now he's sitting in exile. But then in Luke, we have two characters, two women 
in our story who felt the same thing. Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, was a barren old woman. Well, according to our toilet sign, she was halfway there to being able to use the toilet, right? She was an old, barren woman who had never had children at all in her whole life. She was unable to have children. She lived in a time and a place where this was a curse on her. Children were a blessing from God. Women, all they wanted to do was bear children because it it was a blessing that God had given them, a gift. And she was unable to do that. She lived in this place and time where barren women were often looked on as God's punishment to them. Elizabeth believed and worshipped in a God who is. But in her reality, He wasn't. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus, at 12, 14 years old, a young teenage girl, promised to a man to be his wife. She was very poor. She actually was from a place that in the history books referred to Nazareth as the non-place. It's never spoken of, hardly ever, in any of the texts that we have. She was from Nazareth. One of the disciples said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Her fate in life was set. Perhaps she had no dreams. She had no ambition. All she wanted to do was get married, please her parents, please her husband, have children, and try to live past 40. Mary believed and worshipped a God who can, but in her reality, hadn't. Elizabeth and Mary are two completely different people. Different ages, different marital status, different circumstances, different everything, really, about their lives. And yet their story reveals something very deep and profound to us today. Something about God and something about us. Something about this subjunctive space in which we want to live. That sometimes our reality, even though God has promised and we don't see those promises, that sometimes our reality can snuff out the possibilities of God. They were different. But yet still two women who believed in a God who is, but lived in a reality who wasn't. I'm in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, our main text. I'm going to move through it quickly today. We'll get to the end. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph and to the house of he was of the house of David the virgin's name was Mary you know at this time in history Israel was divided into three territories you had Galilee which was the most northern territory in between was Samaria and then you had Judea everyone wanted to be and live in Judea it was where Jerusalem was it was where it was happening it was where the upper class lived but Samaria they didn't even want to go through Samaria, but when they got to Judea or Galilee, Galilee was no better. They didn't think anything good could come down, that God would ever use anything out of Galilee. If God's going to do anything, if God's going to do something, it's going to be from the people of Judea. 
Nothing significant happened or came from Galilee. (laughs) Why Nazareth? Why did God choose Nazareth? Why Mary? Why Joseph? Nothing in Nazareth except these two insignificant people who would become very significant because God chose them. God is not limited. Listen, God is not limited to where you live or what you do, where you're from, what you've done. God is not limited to the places and the systems that we elevate people to. God chose this place and these people because places and people become significant when God shows up. When God touches their life, when God comes and places His hand and His presence upon them, they become significant. In a world that's all about status, this world that God lives in and works in is not about status and importance, but it's about His presence. Verse 28, And He came to her and said, Greetings, this is the angel speaking, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Why was Mary favored? Why her? God often works out His will on earth by favoring common, seemingly insignificant people like you and me. The key here that I want you to see is not that it's about us. It really isn't about Mary. It's not about us. It's about God's will being made a reality in earth and God choosing to do that through people. Common, ordinary people. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in the womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua was his name. It's the later form of the Old Testament name Joshua. We have translated it Jesus, but his name in his language was Yeshua, which was a form of Joseph and we know that or Joshua and we know that Joshua means savior. Luke chapter 1 verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of... There's that Second Samuel chapter 7. There's that psalmist remembering the covenant that God made with David. This is coming true, Mary. God is doing what He's promised He's doing. It's taken hundreds of years, but God never forgets. God always keeps His promises. He is going to be the Son of God. God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign forever in the house of Jacob forever. And His kingdom, here it is, in, of His kingdom there will be no end at all. It will last forever. Finally, God is going to keep His promise. His King is coming, but not exactly how they thought He might. He didn't come through a wealthy, high-ranking religious figure in Jerusalem. But he came to a common, poor, insignificant couple in Nazareth. 
God makes this covenant with David and his kingdom will be forever. And God, through Jesus, is keeping his promise. Listen, nations are forged by human will and human plans, but they are dust in the wind. That includes America. They are dust in the wind. They will rise and they will fall, but God's kingdom will last forever. Forever. Because of Jesus and what God has promised and has fulfilled in Him. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born that the, the child to be born will be called holy, set apart, the Son of God. Even Mary knew the basics of the birds and the bees, the basic biology of how this all works, right? And Mary said, This is impossible. This can't be happening. It's not going to happen because I've never been with a man. This is just impossible. And the angel is saying, yes, it's impossible. And so the angel explains it. And Mary says, oh, that's all okay, right? That's all that's going to happen, right? Verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth. Oh, he brings Elizabeth into this story. We knew from the beginning of the first chapter of Luke what happened to Elizabeth. And I'll explain that here in a minute. He says, in her old age, she also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Why do you think Luke felt it important at this point to bring Aunt Elizabeth back into the story? Aunt Liz, if we can call her. Why did the angel think it important to tell Mary about Elizabeth and her impossibility that has now been made possible? Was it to help Mary believe? Mary, I know you think this is impossible, but you remember your Aunt Liz? Yeah, 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 the old woman that's bare, she's barren, she's never had children. She's having a baby. She's 80 years old. That can't be possible. It is, and she's got six months of growth to prove it. And we know from history and from the Scriptures that Mary went to visit Aunt Elizabeth. And she gave birth to John the Baptist. Perhaps... He brought Elizabeth in because he wanted Mary to believe, to help her to believe. Perhaps if she could see the existence of what is possible with God, it would reveal to us that there are no bounds to what God can do in your life. That there are no barriers for God in your life. There's no despair that is too deep. There's no pain that is too unbearable. There's no situation that is too helpless. And listen, there is no sin that is unforgivable. Imagine that. So what about you and me? I mean, we want a faith that makes sense in the reality of now. (laughs) We want to touch it. We want to understand it. We want to explain it. 
We want to believe in a God who gives us reason to believe now. <coughs> Perhaps this is why so many said to Jesus, we'll believe if you give us a sign. Do a miracle and we'll believe. Faith in the indicative mood, faith that is grounded in what we can explain, prove the facts, our experience matches with our reality. That makes sense, right? Perhaps this is why we Christians are so obsessed with trying to prove God's existence to the world. Trying to prove that the Bible really is the Word of God to the world. Because we want a faith that we can explain. We want a faith that makes sense. We want a faith that's grounded in facts. Faith is believing. Faith is about truth. I'm not saying that this is wrong. We do need to have a faith that lives in the indicative mood. We do need a faith that believes. But we also need a faith that says God could, even though He hasn't. God might, even though I haven't seen it yet. We need to know that God is God, that God is love, that God is good, that God is kind. But we also need to know that even though things aren't as you think they should be right now, God's not done. He's not finished. What do you do with a God who says, fear not? And yet we are faced with so many ways in our world that we can be afraid. Maybe you're fearful now. What do you do with a God who says, I'm always with you, and yet you experience pain and the loss and the loneliness of life? What do you do with a God who says, I have plans for you, but then you hear the doctor say it's terminal? What do you do with a God who says, I love you, and yet you're suffering right now, and you feel that God has left you? So what should we do? I think like Mary and Elizabeth, we should learn from them. Like these two ladies who had this incredible thing happen in their life. We should hold on tightly to that indicative nature of who God is. We should embrace all that we know about God. All that we've learned about God. All that we've seen God do. We should embrace God for what we know. But we should also embrace the subjunctive space of what God can do. Like them, we must connect the dots between what we know and have known and the God who is guiding us into a future that we have not quite yet reached. As we wait, and this is Advent, this is what we look forward to in Christmas when God fulfills His promise in the person of Jesus But there are so many more promises and things that God has yet to do. And as we wait for this kingdom that will never end, where everything that is wrong with the now will be redeemed and made right, the truth is life is going to come at you with all she has. It will be challenging for you. 
It'll lift you up and it'll tear you down. It'll overwhelm you and there will be times of great joy and times of suffering. But the message in the story this morning of Mary and Elizabeth is this. I think I have a slide for you. They fell asleep back there. God is active in the impossible places of your life. He is Emmanuel. God with us. There will be days when you'll want to give up. There will be days when you want to give in. There will be days when you want to walk away. There will be days when you feel that God is not trustworthy. When His promises don't seem to be a reality now. But the message in the story of Mary and Elizabeth is also this. That those who wait on the Lord, those who trust in Him, even when the evidence is stacked up against Him, will be wonderfully and miraculously surprised by all that God will do. By a God who loves when we imagine and we hope for all the possibilities that God is capable of. So, when you are stuck and you feel the doubt, remember the words of the angel, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Worship team's going to come. We're just going to close in a Christmas carol. Would you stand with me as they come? I should have gave them a couple minutes notice. Sorry. Don't you have my notes? This is the joy of Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. Our Father, as we leave this place today and we go to our homes, to our families, to our friends, as we celebrate Christmas on Friday, Christmas Eve on, Saturday, on Thursday. I pray, Lord, that we hear the words of Mary and Elizabeth. For we are your servants. Do to us as you please. We will trust in you. And we'll live in that subjunctive space where, yes, we hold on to what we know, but we'll also hope and imagine all that you can do. In Jesus' name. One.